or the very first words that we heard as we started our series on the book of Acts a number of weeks ago were from Willie James Jennings, who wrote this on page one. The book of Acts speaks of revolution. Unless this book of Acts upends our lives, we're either not understanding its message or we're not willing to follow its message or the Lord who gave it. It's my hope and prayer that the studying of this book, and for many of us it's a familiar book, will will actually change us in some way because the old story is over. The new story is here. How are we going to live it out? Fundamental worldview paradigms must change. Nationalism of every kind must die, and a new community of Jesus followers is being formed. And now we're moving into chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Acts, the story Again, if you're familiar with the book, the story of Cornelius, the the Roman centurion and his uh, meeting with Peter and meeting with the gospel. And Jennings writes this about this particular, this, this story. Here for the first time, we, the Gentiles, fully appear, no longer hinted or suggested or glanced or insinuated. God's guiding hand is not the new thing here. His hand is always guiding. But now God reveals the immeasurable size of those hands. They reach out to capture the lives of the Gentiles, and they reach deeply into our hopes and our prayers. So I'd like to ask you to, if you have a Bible, to open to Acts 11. Otherwise, the text will appear on the screen. The story of Peter and Cornelius appears, as I just mentioned, in Acts 10 and 11. Acts 10 is quite long. It's somewhere around almost 50 verses. It's just too long to read that whole story. But Luke does us all a favor by summarizing the whole story in Acts chapter 11, the first 18 verses. So that's what I'm going to read uh, to you. And this is, again, after Peter has come back from meeting with Cornelius. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. 
And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. We're reading, of course, through the book of Acts, which is the story of this early community of Jesus followers after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and left his people behind. And we've seen the developments as the church has undergone persecution, and as it's begun, a little bit of spread out into Samaria and to other places. And now there's the story of Cornelius, where where Peter makes this bold move under leading of the Holy Spirit into the home of this Roman centurion, this Gentile, this person that Jews wouldn't eat with. And the church in Jerusalem, the Jesus followers in Jerusalem, heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God, and they were mad. I mean, it's just unbelievable, right? It's just unbelievable. They criticized Peter. You went with uncircumcised men, and you ate with them. So they had two problems. The men were uncircumcised, and you ate with them. Jennings puts it this way. Why do you share intimate space with the uncircumcised? Why do you share intimate space with those others? And Peter stands up and he explains to them in order. And again, I quote Jennings. This is an impossible assignment for Peter because he must explain the inexplicable. Peter must lay his body across the line between circumcised and uncircumcised and give witness to its transformation into a bridge. This line becomes a bridge. And the only argument Peter could give with Jewish eyes, kinship eyes bearing down on him was no argument at all. It was simply experience. I don't know if you noticed this, but Peter doesn't do any theologizing here. He doesn't say, well, back in the back in the Torah or back in the prophets or back in the Psalms, God says this and that. And that's why I did this and that. He does only one thing. He tells what happened. He tells that he was praying on this rooftop in Joppa. And his vision of a sheet with animals and beasts of prey and birds of the air came down. And then he hears a voice, and the voice says, Peter, rise and eat. Peter says, I can't. I'm a Jew. We've been told for centuries that there are certain things you can eat and certain things you can't eat. There are certain things that are clean and certain clean things that are common. I can't do it. 
Never, 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 ever has anything, un- has anything common or unclean entered my mouth. I'm a pure man. How can you ask me to ruin my life? This is, this is paradigm shifting stuff that's happening here. And God says, what, man, what God has made clean, do not call common. The Jesus followers in Jerusalem, including Peter, thought in a binary way. There was Jew, there was Gentile. There was clean, there was unclean. There was outside, there was inside. There was circumcised, there was uncircumcised. There was male, there was female. There was worthy to share a table with, and there was unworthy to share a table with. There was special, that's us, and there was common, that's them. And now I'm going to do just a little excursion for the Theo nerds. And uh, if you want to check out for a couple minutes, feel free. Uh, But I'm going to try to do it in such a way that you'll still be interested. But it's a little bit of theology for you. So just bear with me and then we'll get back to some more fun stuff later. If you grew up in, um, particularly in the Reformed Church, you are likely familiar with the doctrine that we call the doctrine of special and common grace. Has anybody heard of it? A few people have. It's uh, something that's been in the church for a while, but it was made popular about 100 years ago by the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper. And Abraham Kuyper developed this idea of special and common grace. And here's its definition. In his common grace, God provides many blessings for his creation, including food and shelter, sunshine and rain, the restraining of evil, and countless innovations and advancements. Special grace, which we find in God's covenant of grace, is limited to those who trust in Christ alone through faith alone. So in other words, in this common special grace distinction, you have the world out there, you have the creation, you have the fact that people are not as bad as they could be, that we're not killing each other every day. You have this knowledge of right and wrong, and you have the scientific and technological developments, and God is involved in that, but that's called common grace. And then the grace that forgives, the grace that brings people into salvation, the grace that comes through Jesus is this special grace. And so you have this distinction between the two. Another Dutch theologian, Louis Burkhoff, who lived a few years after Kuiper, put it this way. It should be understood, however, that Reformed theology does not regard the doctrine of common grace as a part of soteriology, and soteriology is an expensive word for the doctrine of salvation. So this Dutch theologian Burkhoff separates common grace from the doctrine of salvation, separates it from Christ. And I want to place a little objection to that. I want to place a little objection to that. One of the main Bible texts that is used to back up 
this foundation for this common grace idea is this one. You probably know it. For God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And I have a question for you. Where does that verse come from in the Bible? You don't have to answer. I've asked probably in the last 15 or 20 years between 50 and 100 Christians this question. Where does this verse come from? 90% of them, I'm just guessing, somewhere around there, have said Old Testament. Most of them said probably the Psalms, maybe Isaiah. It's not from the Old Testament. It's from the New Testament. It's the only obvious choice. And it's not from Paul. It's from the Gospels. And it's in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's actually words of Jesus. And it's words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And let me place these words in context. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise upon the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus is saying, you've heard, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I'm telling you something totally different. There's some special grace going on here. I want you to love your enemy. And if you do that, you'll become sons of the Father, which is also special grace brought, brought about because of Jesus' work. And how do you know that God's going to do this? Because he sends his rain and he sends his son. It's directly connected to special grace. See that? Peter has this idea of common grace. That there's this distinction between us and them. That we are in in a special way, and the rest is out. And it needs to be blown apart. And I quote Jennings again. The revolution, the, the revolution descends on a sheet. The sheet is everything. The sheet is radical. The sheet shatters and destroys. Its four corners are harbinger of its range and its reach across a planet and a universe. There's no special and common grace anymore. It's all Christ, God's grace in Christ. Arise, Peter, says Jennings, kill and eat. These words stand over against all other words of God, forever recasting them and forming them to new purposes. These words echo across the church's history, but they have rarely, if ever, maybe never, really been heard in all their redemptive history. A sheet of animals, I continue with Jennings, a sheet of animals descended from heaven and the creator of the world granted to Peter permission to eat. In so doing, God placed Peter in the midst of the world and said, join it, join them. See the direction difference? Not, we're here, we're special, you join us. No. We've been called to join you. 
The church has, throughout the centuries, not joined the world. It has separated itself from the world and demanded that the world come to it. The church has divided people and creation in categories of in and out, belong and don't belong, saved and unsaved, us and them, friend and enemy. We have acted as if we are bringing Christ to a world where he is not, instead of understanding that we are joining and entering into a world where Christ already is. And I don't know if that changes anything for you. It's brought just maybe some, some theology and doesn't have a lot of meaning. But for me, it changes just about everything. It sends me out into this world. And whoever I meet, and whatever piece of nature I see, whatever I find out there, I'm looking to see Christ. Where he's already been at work, already been doing his work of reconciling and of, of, of bringing all things to himself and of making all things new. And I'm not, no, I'm not different than anybody else. We're all the same, struggling with our lives, trying to make something of it. And Christ is in there, usually silent and usually in the background and not readily visible, but still there, working to reconcile and bring new life and new creation to everything and everyone. Peter goes on to tell his story. He went to Cornelius' house. He went in there. He told the message about God who shows no partiality, and about Jesus, who is Lord of all, who went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Who isn't oppressed by the devil? He heals all of them. And he was put to death by the Jews by crucifixion. But God raised him. We are witnesses of that, says Peter. And everyone who believes on him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And then Peter tells about the Holy, how the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his family. And then Peter says, I remembered the word of the Lord. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. See the experience here? I saw it happen. And if God did it for them, who was I? to stand in his way. Who was I to keep that line there instead of turning it into a bridge? Then I don't know if you remember what happened next. You probably don't because it's just a couple little words. They fell silent. I have no idea how long that silence lasted. Can you imagine? A church meeting where they fell silent. The impact of what had happened and of what Peter said was great that they fell silent. 
And I'm certain, I'm reading into it, of course, but I am certain that in that silence was a deep repentance, a deep change of mind, a deep change of heart. We have been treating as common what God has made special. And now everything needs to change. Church is not very good at being silent. Over the last 20 to 30 years in our own society, the racism, the militarism, the materialism, the sexual and other kinds of abuse that the church has been involved in has been revealed and has been called out. Just think of the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement of just the last couple of years. And has the church remained, has the church fallen silent? Not really. The church has screamed harder and harder, has stoked up the culture wars, protesting loudly, saying, how dare you call us racist? How dare you interfere with our mission by pointing out abuse? How dare you suggest that we're violent people? How dare you? How dare you cancel us? How dare you set us on the side? And the screaming has become louder and louder. And nowhere, of course, I don't know everything, but nowhere do I hear of a church that fell silent and said, okay, this is what is being said to us. Am I going to listen? And am I going to understand? And am I going to repent? And are, are we, not I, we, are we going to change? And until the church falls silent, we are never going to come loose from the oppression that our racism and militarism and materialism and the tendency toward abuse and, and making other people submit to us the abuse of power, we're never going to come loose of it. That silence has to happen. And then the end of the story, they glorify God. Now we know that even those people that we used to call common and unworthy, that God has granted to them repentance that leads to life. There are no barriers anymore. I'd like to conclude with two thoughts. The first one is a challenge. Are you willing to be silent? Are we willing to be silent? Are we willing to get rid of our binaries? 
This whole thing of Jew and Gentile is for us a little bit of a far from our bed show. It was 2,000 years ago. We don't have those issues anymore. We're, we're all Gentiles anyway. We, we don't, and we're of course not racist or anything like that. We're, we're all pretty good people and there's nothing really that needs to change. But I don't believe that's true. Things need to change, especially in the church. One of the things that needs to happen is we need to get rid of this common special binary. The lines drawn between genders, between ethnicities, between colors, between education levels, between religiosities, between creeds, between groups. Do you fit in or don't you? The judgment that looks at another group of people and says they're not succeeding in our society because they're not working hard enough. I heard this yesterday from someone from from I I heard it literally from lips to my ear. If they would just work a little harder and put themselves to it. They would make it. Are you willing to join the world? instead of demanding that the world join us? Are you willing to see Christ in the other, even if he or she doesn't look to you, look like you? And if you don't work intentionally on this, it won't happen. Peter had been with Jesus for three years. He had, I don't know if he'd witnessed the crucifixion, but he was pretty close to it. Then he had seen Jesus after the resurrection, was with Jesus for 40 days. He had, he had heard the great commission given by Jesus. He'd seen Jesus ascended into heaven. He'd, he, he was one of the ones on whom the Holy Spirit fell with the tongues of, of flame. And he still didn't get it. He still needed a sheep. you think that by sitting on your couch and binging on Netflix, you're going to get this, you ain't. <laughs> it's not going to happen until something happens. That's the first one. That's kind of, kind of harsh. I'm sorry if I'm a little bit harsh. don't mean to be harsh, but, but we're all, including myself, pretty comfortable generally. And we tend to think in these in and out categories. It's hard to break out of them. It's really hard. It needs a sheet. But the other thing is that it's a tremendous joy and fulfillment to join this movement of God, this wave, breaking down barriers and walls, destroying in-and-out thinking and acting, moving through history with the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, healing all who are oppressed by the devil. To join that movement intentionally, consciously, what can I do to go into my world and meet Christ there and rejoice Because he's there and because I can see that he is doing his work. Jennings again. What does a new world look like? We will know it by its fruit. 
that which builds life together, life abundant, and deepening life in God is truly a new word from God, that which speaks the community of Christ and echoes a desire for shared life, shared hope, and redemption from death and all its agents is always a new word from God. Shared life, shared hope, redemption from death and its agents. That's what Jesus is doing. He's doing it for all of us. There's no in and outs. There's no lines. The lines have become bridges. And we have the calling to move out into this world and there to meet Christ who holds all things together and who is reconciling all things to himself.